Geek Rocks in. Will you join me uh, in a word of prayer? Father, this is your word. Uh, these are your people. Uh, this is your church. God, this is your world. Uh, and so we just pray now uh, at the start of all this, Lord, that you would just have your way in our midst this morning. God, that you would speak each to each of us individually what you want us to hear. Uh, and may we be humble and obedient receivers of that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm surrounded by women all the time in my household, uh, and, and one of the things that, that both my two older daughters and my wife have in common is they absolutely love swimming. Uh, if they had their way, all summer would be, would be spent swimming. And so in some subtle ways, in some really not so subtle ways, every year comes summertime, there's pressure coming from those three on me to buy a pool. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's really subtle, like, it's just hard to take the girls outside when it's this hot. And then other times she'll just text me, I really wish we had a pool, right? And it just, she doesn't even try to hide it at that point. And, and here's, here's the issue I have. I love swimming, okay? I have nothing against swimming. The only thing I love more in summer than swimming is not buying a pool. So there you can see the issue there. And, and this is helps because uh, my parents actually have a pool and it's free because they bought it, right? And we can go to it whenever we want and I don't have to spend anything. And so that's what we try to do. And so throughout the summer, we'll make trips over to Cloverdale. And, and my participation in, in these activities always falls into one of three ways. So if you would imagine to me this morning, this, this here represents a pool. Logan didn't know he was going to be swimming this morning, but he's actually swimming right now. That's what I want you to picture, okay? And, and every time we go to my parents' house in the summer, my, my two oldest daughters, Hattie and Jim, always want me to swim with them. But the way this goes is it breaks down one of three ways. Sometimes I'm just dropping them off, right? Because I'm on my way to Indianapolis to do a hospital visit, or I'm on my way to a meeting, or some, something that I need to be professional and presentable, right? And I, I don't have time, so it's just a drop-off. You get in the pool. And so when that happens, I always stand away from the pool, make sure they get in, they can't splash me, and I go, I'm all the way out, okay? The other way this goes is that we go there for just that reason, only just to swim, all right? So we go there to visit my parents to swim, and then this time, I, what do I do? I bring a towel, I bring my swim trunks, I'm, I'm all in, right? And since a young age, I've never understand you people who use a ladder to get into a pool, right? That's just, it's, it's, if it's cold, it takes too long. If it's comfortable, why not just jump? So I've always just, my first entryway into pool every, every time is a cannonball, okay? And, and, and when I was a teenager, this was a little more impressive. Now it's kind of this bloated, pasty mass of humanity just sort of falling into a pool, right? Um, but the, but the, the, the deal is that I'm all, I jump all the way in and, and, and I'm fully engaged in experience. It's, it's, it's full of joy, at least for the 12 and a half minutes until my white skin starts getting sunburned and then I'm out, okay? The third way, and I want you to picture, I hope you can see this if you're in the back, is I pull something like this. Well, I got, I've got one foot in and I've got one foot out. And the reason that I would do this it's because I have concerns in both places, right? There's, there's somebody on the deck that's not swimming that I want to have a conversation with and I want to give attention to. Or there's a baby there, most likely, that I'm trying to keep from dying. And so there's something up here that, that still has my attention, still has my heart, has my focus. But I don't want Hattie and Jimmy to feel like I'm completely bailing on them. And so I've got one foot in the pool so that they can kind of splash around with it, get me wet if they want. But so I'm not all the way out and I'm not all the way in. And you're like, what's the point of this? The point of this is I, I fear that many people in our day, and I would even say this, that many people in the room are treating Jesus just like this. You've got one foot kind of dangling in the water, and you've got the rest of you out because you have all your heart and focus is here, and all your heart and focus is here, and it's, it's divided, it's split. Right? This, this is those of you who would call Jesus your Lord, 
but he's not Lord over your finances. And he's not Lord over your schedule. And he's not Lord over your internet browser history. And he's not Lord over the way that you are raising your children. He's not Lord over the priorities you're setting in your life. You're just, you're just declaring, I, I like Jesus. I, I'm, I'm claiming his name. You, these are those of you who would say, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, but you've never even once considered like going to a mission field on a foreign field and sharing the hope of Jesus. There, there's no one in your life that's a non-believer that you're praying for. You never once shared the hope of Jesus Christ with someone else because ne- it's never even crossed your mind as to how you should be living that way. Those of you who are here this morning because you like the people here, you like the music here, you, this is good for your kids, but, but tomorrow morning your life won't look any different than, than the people who took a path on this this morning. Those of you who are here because there was nothing better to do today than this. And if you're honest, that's the reason you came. And so here's, here's my bet this morning. That, that the people over there who are all out on Jesus, completely rejected, completely opposed, I doubt there's many of you here this morning or else you wouldn't give of an hour on your Sunday morning to be here. If, if that's you and you're here, first of all, good on you because that shows at least an ability for some personal growth and flexibility. And I, and I pray that you see the hope of Jesus is what you need. But my guess is there, if there's three groups of people here today, the ones who are all in, fully devoted, the ones who are sort of dabbling this, this, all this Jesus stuff is brand new to you, and so you're just kind of asking questions and just kind of figuring out that you, man, we're, we are so glad that you're here. Keep coming, keep asking questions. And the third group is the people who have one foot in and one foot out. And, and what I want to do to you today, to that group specifically, is, is make sure you leave today knowing that's simply not an option. You might think you can make that choice, but that's not a choice. Because Jesus Christ simply didn't leave us with that choice. And so the best, the best representation of this, I think, starts with that conversation that Jesus had in Matthew 21 with the religious leaders. And you know, before we get to the section that Roxanne read, Jesus had been doing some stuff in Matthew 21. And, and what he'd been doing was he'd just been ruffling a lot of feathers and upsetting a lot of apple carts. Because at the start of Matthew 21, we find him riding into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey and accepting the praise of thousands of people. And the titles they were calling him were, were signifying that he was the Messiah. He was the promised one of God that they'd been waiting on. And you see this group of people uh, known as the religious leaders of Israel. Okay? These are the chief priests and the Pharisees and, and the, the scribes. They, they got really upset at this. Right? Because they knew what these titles meant. They knew that, that these people were claiming their Messiah. They're even kids saying it. And they, and they say to Jesus, why, do, why don't you shut them up? Like, do you understand what they're saying? Why don't you tell them to be quiet? You know what Jesus said to them? If I tell them to be quiet, even the stones will cry out because that's who I am. Okay? So that ticks them off enough. Guess what he does the next day? He comes strolling into their temple. And in, in the temple court, there sets up, they have these tables set up where these guys are doing uh, money exchanges so that people can make their temple tax. And Jesus shows up with a whip and he starts flipping over everyone's table and he takes a whip and he drives these people out of the temple and he says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And so now the, 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 the religious leaders, the people who like the status quo, they are at their wits end and so they come to Jesus about a third of the way into Matthew 21 and they ask him this question, where do you get the authority to do these things? And you know what they're asking? What gives you the right to show up here and mess up everything that we had set up? Now, 
If you were here last week, that's what we spent all our time on, right? Just the authority of Jesus. What gives him the authority? And so if you weren't here, I'll walk you through it real quick. Uh, we looked last week on how the biblical picture of the authority of Jesus Christ is quite clear. That he has had authority from the very beginning of time and he'll have it forever. John chapter 1 tells us that all things that have been created were made through Jesus Christ. That there's nothing that has been made that would have been made apart from him. Colossians 1 says that all things are made through him and for him. So we can see that from the beginning of the existence of time, Jesus Christ reigns supreme. He reigned supreme when he was here. We looked at Luke 2 last week when the angel announces his birth to the shepherds. And they say, today has been born to you a savior in the town of David. He is Christ the Lord. Right, so even at his smallest physical space, or, or smallest physical stature, he never gave up an ounce of his authority. He has authority this very day. After the resurrection, he gathers his disciples to him in Matthew 28 and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he has authority for all time. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he sits at the right hand of the Father on the throne in heaven and he is waiting until all his enemies are put under his feet. That he will destroy all death and evil forever. And so listen, Jesus Christ had authority from the beginning. He had authority to the end. And so what he doesn't need to do is give his bona fides to this group of power-hungry uh, Pharisees. And so he doesn't even answer him. He gives them this little trick, a puzzle about John the Baptist. They can't come over there. He's like, I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from then. But what I will do is I'll tell you two stories. And both these stories are about them. And they are too dull to see it. The first one, he tells the story of two sons. He says, guys, there's a father who had two sons. And early in the morning, he goes to his sons. And he says to the first one, son, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go out into our vineyard today. I need you to just put in a day of hard labor for me. And you know what the first son says? Nah, I'm not going to do that. I, I got other plans today. It's, it's hot. I, you know what? I understand you're my father, but no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and you need to know, in, in first century Jewish culture, that would have been just a shocking thing to hear. Like, this, this is a twist in the story that no one would have seen coming. And so then the father turns to his other son. And those of you with, with multiple children, have you noticed that when one of your children are in trouble, the other one starts acting really, really good? Have you picked up? I mean, if you want our, our second oldest, Jim, if you want her to be the sweetest, kindest, most respectful, obedient child ever, just get her sister in trouble. Right? When Hattie's getting in trouble, she'll come up and be like, I love you, Daddy. I'll do whatever you want, right? Because that's her time to shine, okay? And she's figured this out. And that, the, the brother in Jesus' story figured this out because he doesn't say yes. What does he say? Oh, sir, I will go, sir, of course. Whatever you need from me, Father, I will give it to you. But then what happened later in the day? Later that morning, the first son begins thinking about how disrespectful and disobedient he was. And he says, you know what, I, I need to go out to the vineyard. I need to go put a day's work in. And he does it without fanfare, without announcement. What's the second son do? He already got the pat on the back at breakfast. He got all the kudos he needed. He, he, he already got people looking at him and saying, that's the obedient son. So he just, takes a, he just bails on all of it and doesn't go. And then Jesus asks these religious leaders, so which one of the sons did what the father wanted? It's a really simple patronizing question, but Jesus is making a point, right? And I say, well, the first. And then he points out to them because they, they're not getting it. He says, don't you realize that when John the Baptist came, there were tax collectors and prostitutes? Now, I want you to know those two groups Jesus mentioned on purpose because those are the two groups that were labeled as the most sinful, the most despised. They would have been the most hated by the religious leaders of Israel. He says, there are tax collectors and prostitutes who are coming into the kingdom of heaven before you because when John showed up and preached repentance, they were humble and they repented. They turned from their life of sin and they started following God. Meanwhile, you people, 
You, you leaders, you've had the temple, right? You've, you've got the boxes of scripture on your chest. You, you, you've quote, you can quote the entire Old Testament. You are the religious leaders of Israel. And yet when John came, you rejected him because you didn't want to repent of anything. You're all show. You're all talk. You're no obedience. And then they, didn't, they still didn't quite get where he's going with this. And so already he's made them mad. And he's like, I've got another story for you too. And in this story... There's a guy who owns a lot of property, and he decides he's going to make money on some of it. And so he builds, he, he plants a vineyard, and he puts a gate around it, he puts a watchtower over it, and then he hires out some local farmers, some local tenants to watch over it. And when harvest time comes, that means it's time for him to get what's his. He needs to get the fruit from the harvest, and so he sends some of his servants to, to, to get the fruit from the harvest. And what happens? The tenants start mistreating all the servants. First, they beat, they beat the first one he sends. Then, then they kill the second one. Then they stone the third. And so he keeps sending more and more servants, and they keep mistreating all the servants. And finally, the, the landowner says, you know what? I've, I've got this figured out. The, in, in, in Jewish culture, there would have been great respect for a line of descendancy inheritance. So if I send my son, then no matter what, they have to respect his title as my son. Right? No, matter, no matter how wicked these tenants are, they have to respect that this child, this guy is my son, and they need to show him honor, and they'll give him the fruit of the harvest. And what happens when the son shows up? The tenants say, wait a minute, this is the heir to the, this is the, heir to the inheritance. If we knock him out, this can all be ours. And they kill the son. And so Jesus then turns to the religious leaders of Israel, and he says, what do you think the farmer will do to them? And again, they, they still don't realize he's talking about them. And they said, well, those wretched guys will be brought to a wretched end, and he will take that vineyard away from them and give it to someone who will produce fruit. And it's like a light bulb goes off, and Jesus goes, yes. Now listen to this. Look at verse 42. Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? All right, already that line's insulting to them. Okay, because they have memorized the entire Old Testament. And he says to them, have you never read this? Where it says, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes them a prophecy that every single one of them could have quoted back to him, word for word. They they knew this prophecy was about the Messiah. And, and, And the prophecy is this, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, what you need to know is that in ancient construction, right, all large buildings began with a cornerstone. It was the most important, uh, most weight-bearing, most carefully constructed part of the building. Without a good cornerstone, everything else would crumble because the foundation wouldn't be secure. And so Jesus is telling these religious leaders, God has sent you the cornerstone. God has literally sent you his son, and I'm him. And what you've done is you've foolishly and selfishly rejected him. And guess what? It's no matter, because God can't be stopped. The stone that you've rejected me, God is still using to build his entire kingdom. I'm still going to become the cornerstone. We haven't needed your approval at any, any, any point. In fact, the only people you're hurting is yourself. And then he goes on to verse 43, and he says this. I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who produce its fruit. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, guys, you... We were more than patient. You had your chance. And you could have been in on what God was doing. Instead, you, what you've done is for centuries, you've relied on your position as children of Abraham. 
All your trust was that you were the sons of Abraham. And guess what? That doesn't count anymore. This is why John the Baptist showed up in John 1 and said, he said that this doesn't matter. Do you know God could raise up sons of Abraham from these stones? Right? He said what God is looking for is fruit. What God is looking for is evidence of true belief, which means repentance and humility and surrender and following his will. Without any evidence of that, they would lose their standards as keepers of the kingdom. That God would tear the kingdom from Abraham's genealogical descendants and give it to his spiritual descendants. Now listen, this is not the point of the sermon today, but please don't miss this, especially if, if you consider yourself a student of the Bible. Picture this scene. This is Jesus Christ, a Jewish rabbi, claiming to be the Messiah, the promised one that all of Israel had waited for, standing in the heart of Jerusalem near the temple, telling Jewish leaders that God's kingdom is going to be taken away from them and given to any who believe, including Gentiles. And if you get the ramifications of that, it's no wonder they killed him a few days later. The tension right at this moment could be cut with a knife. They would be the angriest they've ever been at him, and he's just getting started. Look what he says next in verse 44. It says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Are you getting what he's saying there? Because if so, you're starting to get the picture that Jesus Christ doesn't leave us with middle ground. Two verses before verse 44 and verse 42, he called himself the cornerstone, which is, which is a bold enough claim in itself, right? He's saying that I am the Messiah. I'm the one that Israel has waited hundreds of years on. I'm the promised one of God. I'm the son of God. God's entire kingdom is built on me. The foundation of everything that God is going to do is me. I'm the hope not only of Israel, but for all who believe in me. But you understand that stones aren't only capable of being foundations, Right? Stones can also be very destructive when you come into contact with them the wrong way. And so Jesus says, all who fall on this stone, hear me, he's saying, all who fall on me will be broken to pieces. Everyone who opposes me, that's the equivalent of beating your head against a rock. It's an incredibly foolish action that ends in your harm and the rock will be just fine. He goes on to say, anyone who, on whom it falls will be crushed. Anyone on whom I fall is what he's saying will be crushed. He's warning against trivializing or, or dismissing or ignoring Jesus because apathy towards Jesus is like standing in the way of a falling boulder and not moving. He's saying, listen, I am the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Lord of the universe. And what I'm setting about to do will get done because I'm unstoppable. And so opposing me ignoring me, belittling me, that won't end well for you because my kingdom is not inconsequential. What God the Father has set in motion for me to do will get done because it must go on. And I want you to see that, that Jesus left them with two choices. They could, one, embrace him fully. They could accept him as their Messiah and their Lord. They could worship him and they could join him by serving his kingdom and his mission gladly or they could flatly, totally reject him and oppose him, and ignore him, right? And they would be crushed because of who he is. Those are the only two options he left them. And what I want us to understand this morning is this isn't just a decision that they had to make. We're celebrating this month's Christmas, right? Which, which means we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus Christ in human form on earth. And, and from the moment of his arrival, people have been forced into this very decision, you can watch, you can, you can walk yourself through recorded history and you see people taking their side of the stone. 
Right, let's take the birth narratives. Right when, when Jesus is born, we're told that shepherds show up and say that, that these angels appeared to him and announced that this baby was the Messiah, the Lord, and they were here to worship him. Right? Then when they go to the temple to have him dedicated, there's, there's a Simeon and Anna who just begin announcing to everyone that this child is the promised child of God. Shortly after, there's, there's magi traveling from a far country to give him gifts and worship him and declare him as a king. But what else is happening? What else is happening is there's a king in Jerusalem named Herod who's sending out a detachment of soldiers to kill every male baby two years old and under because he sees this baby as such a threat. You move on to his teaching. And on one side of the stone, what you find is, is many groups claiming that he's the Messiah. You see people leaving everything to follow him. You see crowds pressing in on him just to, just to try to be near to him and hear his teaching. They were bringing their sick to him. They're hanging on every word. When he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, there's thousands lining the streets and praising his name. And yet on the other side of the stone, you watch him getting ran out of Nazareth. The people of Gerasenes begging him to leave the region and never return. The religious leaders opposing his every single step, trying to trap him and pay false witnesses to lie about him. They arranged his betrayal and demanded his execution. Then after the resurrection, you watch, you can watch, you walk through history, you watch as his followers started the church with the message that they were to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ. And on their very first day, thousands of people joined the church. And they went from there, from Jerusalem, to all over the known world with the message is that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for our sins and raised from the dead, and salvation is in him and him alone, and millions of people believed. And yet on the other side of the stone, you had those in power who began to feel the shift and began to feel threatened as their, their areas of oversight were changing. And so they tried all they could to squash Jesus' church. And they arrested his followers and persecuted and beat them and killed them. And this continues to this day. The church of Jesus Christ has spread to every continent of the world. The Bible has been translated. The full Bible has been translated in over 670 different languages. The New Testament has been translated in over 1,500 languages. There have been missionaries who have literally given up everything they have to, to go around the world and spread his fame and share his message. Meanwhile, at the same time, there's been no other group that's been under consistent attack longer than the Church of Jesus Christ. As we stand today, by conservative essence, more than 71 million followers of Jesus have been killed by other, by other powers or their government for no other reason than believing in Jesus Christ. There are scientists and archaeologists who flatly declare that their life mission is to pour everything into their work to try to prove everything his followers believe is wrong. And as a result, countless of them, through their findings, have actually come to place their faith in him and flip their side of the stone. Listen, man, it's, I don't care what you believe this morning. It is absolutely undeniable that there's no one person in history that has caused more diverse reactions, more diverse emotions, more controversy and anger and hope and joy and frustration than Jesus Christ. And I want you to just take a second to think about that because it's Jesus Christ we're talking about. A man who was born in a manger to a poor carpenter and an orphan girl in scorn. A man who received zero formal education, whose only earthly trade was carpentry, who never wrote a book, never ran for office, never held a position of power, never led an army. He never even traveled outside a region one-twelfth the size of the state of Michigan. His public ministry was all of three years. He was arrested and executed on a cross besides two common criminals. And while on the cross, there were soldiers at the foot of his cross gambling for his clothes, the only earthly possession he had. And that man, 
has led to more than 20 centuries worth of extreme reactions, emotions, claims, and beliefs. That Jesus has shaped our world more than anyone who's ever lived. You see, it doesn't matter that you weren't born in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. There remains a question that is driven down through every generation since, a question that you and I must form an answer to and we must declare, and the question is this, just who is this Jesus? Just who, who are we going to recognize him to be? And I'm, and I'm going to tell you this morning, there's a modern-day approach to this question that's twofold and incredibly foolish. And the first approach is this. It's to try to just to lump everyone together. Right, we've been heavy for a moment, so I'll share with you a silly story. There's a, there's a game called Kick the Can. Right? We, we played this all the time in the Parks household growing up outside in the backyard. And I don't have time to explain to you what this game is, if you don't know what it is. But just think, like, it's, it's one half hide and seek, one half capture the flag, and all parts awesomeness. Okay? Um, it's an amazing game. And so... Uh, there, a few Christmases back, we were all there at the house, uh, at my mom and dad's house for Christmas, and, and it was unseasonably warm. It was like 50s and sunny. And so somebody came up with the idea of, what if we went outside and played kick the can like we did growing up? And I'm so thankful for whoever had that idea, because what happened is, I played the single greatest game of kick the can that's ever been played. Right? I can stay in today and tell you, I know what Tiger Woods felt like during the 97 Masters. I know what Kobe Bryant felt like when he was dropping 81 in the Raptors because I felt it that day and kicked the can. Every single move I made was perfect. My strategy was flawless. I mean, it was amazing. So you can imagine my utter shock and dismay when I go back in the house after sufficiently dominating everyone and I hear my two pea brain brothers claiming that they'd played the, the game the best. Right? Now, now, I'll tell you, if you're getting ready to have a family gathering, avoid debates, right? I, I normally don't like this, but, but I am such a fan of the truth that I just had to speak up, right? And I had to tell them, you guys are out of your minds, right? There's no way. Did you, were you blind out there? Did you not see me dominating? And so what, what ended up happening is it's all three of us ended up presenting our case to the rest of the extended family about why our game was the flawless, perfect one, okay? And, and you might be thinking, that that's, this is childish. Well, give us a break. It wasn't present day. We're just now hitting 30, okay? Um, and, and I'm telling you, this is the most important debate I've ever been in in my life. Uh, and, and so I made my case, and I waited for the answer. And you know what happened? Nobody in our family had the guts to declare a winner. Those spineless cowards <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't rightfully give me my title. And you know why? Because my brothers are such babies. They'd have thrown a massive fit and ruined everyone's Christmas. That's, that's what I believe. That's the only explanation I have, right? What they actually claimed, and I, it hurts to even say what they actually claimed was that no one actually stood out enough. Can you believe that, right? Now, here's, here's why I tell you that stupid story. The 2018 popular message when it comes to religious figures is equivalent to my brother's plan, kick the can. That you present your cases and there's going to be merits to all. There's going to be uh, validity to all, right? There's going to be benefits to all. And, and at the end of it, no one really is that different, no one really stands out. And, and I want you to know, not a single rational person would ever be able to declare that when looking at the life of Jesus. You can't do it. You can't look at what happened from the moment he was born till now and even begin to utter that sentence. And the second modern strategy is this. Knowing that, they just try to avoid the question. It's this safe, 
uh, antiseptic, I'm going swimming, but I'm, I'm not really. I'm just kind of dipping my toes in the pool, right? It's the, it's, the, it's the taking the posture that Jesus Christ is someone to be admired, right? He, he, we should all strive to be more like Jesus. We should all love other people. We should all help the poor. Isn't, isn't Jesus a good guy? He's such an inspiring teacher, charismatic personality. What a good guy. Now, the rest of that, that stuff you hear about him, you know, son of God, dying for sin, do with that whatever you want, right? You don't really have to decide on that. Just give him his due. Just say nice things about him. And you know what? Nothing could be further from the truth because he did not leave us with that option. For him to live as he lived teach as he taught, die as he did, and raise from the dead. He did not leave you with that option. Look at what 1 Peter 2 tells us. It says in, in Scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And listen to this, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Do you know when Peter wrote that? He wrote that a handful of decades after Jesus' resurrection. And he's writing to a group of people who are scattered all over the known region at the time. He was not, listen to me, he was not writing to the religious leaders that Jesus was talking to in Matthew 21. And if you remember, Jesus, in talking to those leaders in Matthew 21, he leaves this, he tells them this, I can be your cornerstone or I can be the stone that crushes you. And so here you have Peter, decades later, writing to an entirely different group made of both Jews and Gentiles, and he says, this, this, is your, this is your choice, that Jesus can be your cornerstone, or he can be your stumbling block and the stone that causes you to fall. Do you get what he's saying? It's the same choice. And the choice goes to you today. He can be your cornerstone. He can. He can be your purpose for existence this morning. He can be your Lord from whom you take your lead. He can be the master that you serve, the God whom you obey. He can be the one in whom you rely on for forgiveness and grace and strength. He can be your hope for eternal life and your rock and your redeemer and your savior and your Lord. He can be the object of your heart and the desire of your life and the aim of your pursuits. And if he's all that to you, right, if he's the prize of your existence, I want you to see the promise. Peter says you will never be put to shame. And the reason why is because what you've built your life on, your cornerstone is the same cornerstone that God used to build his kingdom. Jesus Christ is that for He can be that for you. Or He'll be the one you trip over on the way to hell. He'll be the stone on which you'll be harmed, the rock which will crush you. And here's why everything that has been created was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. The reason that you currently have breath in your lungs is because He made you and is allowing you to exist. He has determined when and where that you would live. He is holding all of this creation together by his power. And we celebrate at Christmas he's coming to earth. But why he came was crucially important. And he tells us why. He tells us that, that we are sinners. And, and that the idea that you and I sin is, is a very big and troubling ordeal. Sin is the reason that we will die. Sin, if not atoned for, is the reason that we will spend an eternity in hell. And so Jesus Christ, in response to that, out of love for us, came in a way that no one else could ever come. 
He lived a perfect life in a way that no one else ever has or could. He died on the cross in our place in a way that no one else could take our place. And then he rose from the dead as no one else ever has, could, or will. And he did it. And he says that if we then completely trust in him and his sacrifice, then his life and his death and his resurrection will be sufficient to forgive our sins and grant us eternal life in heaven. And he also says he's the only one who can do that because he's the only one who did all that he's done already. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he's acting out a plan that when completed will place all his enemies under his feet and one day every single knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and you will stand before him to give an account for your life. And listen, it needs to be clear by now there is no middle ground left. That's why we find Jesus in Revelation 3 talking to this church in Laodicea and he's upset with them and he says the reason I'm angry with you is that you're neither hot nor cold you're neither all in or all out you're this lukewarm patronizing nonsense of being in the middle and so for that reason I'm going to spit you out of my mouth and here's why if that's his message if he's the foundation of the entire kingdom of God then this is either true or it isn't those are the only options we have left either Jesus Christ is the Messiah or he is not Either Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the visible image of the invisible God, or he isn't. Either I'm a sinner, just like he says, or you know what, I'm a pretty good person who can find my way on my own. Either he lived the perfect life, or he didn't. Either he died on the cross for my sins, or he simply just died. Either he rose from the dead, or he didn't. Either he is the way, the truth, and the life through which no one can come to the Father but by him, or he's not. Either he's the hope in the face of all our suffering or he's a scam artist. Either he's worthy of my life and my devotion to everything or he is flatly to be rejected and opposed. Which is why he is either my cornerstone or the stone that crushes me. Because to take the middle ground, to put one foot in the pool and keep one foot out, to pass on the decision is just the same to God as an outright rejection. You are either all in with Jesus or you're all out. And listen, I get it, by the way. I get the appeal. I get the hesitation. It feels so much safer to admire Jesus. In our, in our human minds, it, it seems so much wiser to be a fan. And you know why? Because once you dive in, then you have to recognize his authority. And once you recognize his authority, well, there are just certain things that aren't allowed anymore. And these are the things that keep so many people from from diving in because Jesus Christ is a threat. He's a threat to anyone who wants to rule their own world or run their own life. He's a threat to anyone who wants to use the power they have for their own advantage. He's a threat to anyone who does not see all people as equal. He's a threat to anyone who wants to set their own morality and be their own God. He's a threat to our arrogance and our pride. He's a threat to any who rely on their goodness and their worth and their success or their deeds or their lineage or their tradition for their standing with God. Do you realize what cannot be allowed to exist anymore if Jesus Christ takes control of our lives? Selfish motivations are out. The pursuit of pleasure above all else is out. Lording over others, not caring for others is out. Doing things just for your own gain is out. Having a lack of submission to authority is out. All those things disappear. All those things simply are not allowed when Jesus Christ is your Lord. And so the temptation is strong to admire him from afar. It's strong to be his fan but keep control of all that. It's strong to say, I believe in him, but not grant him rule either. And what I need you to see is that it may seem wise now, but in the end, it's foolishness. It's only going to lead to harm. 
You know what it is? It's standing under a falling boulder and refusing to move because you like the shade. Only Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Only Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission for your soul. Only Jesus Christ died for your sins. Only Jesus Christ defeated death. Only Jesus Christ can offer you forgiveness and eternal life, which is why he says this in Matthew 7. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a, man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I want you not to miss what he's saying there. That is Jesus at the end of his longest recorded public teaching in the Gospels. And the way he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount is this. You all have two options. The first one is to be wise. And to be wise is to build your entire life on me and everything I teach you. And if you do, then I will form a foundation. I will be the rock of your life that you can build everything upon. And when the storms of life come, because they will, no matter what happens, your foundation will hold firm because it's me. You've placed everything on me, and I will never let you down. Or you have the foolish option. And I want you to hear this. The foolish option is to build your life on, don't miss this, anything else. Anything else. This is, this is the closest Jesus comes to embracing the modern idea where everything's equal. He's like, yeah, apart from me, everything is equal. It's foolishness. Because you build your life on anything else other than me, what you've done is you built your life on a foundation of sand. And eventually there's going to be a storm big enough come along that will wreck everything that you put your hope in, wreck everything you put your faith in, everything that you believed in, and it will all come crashing down because you rejected me. There is no middle ground, right? Which is why what I want you to do this morning is really simple and really clear. Be on the right side of the stone. You've got to get on the right side of the stone. Today, declare that you will stand on the cornerstone of your life, Jesus Christ. That Jesus will be the foundation of your life, that he is what you build upon, that you are not his fan, you're his follower. That you don't admire him, but you adore him and worship him and serve him. That you don't think positively towards him, you surrender your entire life to him. And he can be your rock. He can be the one who holds true through all the storms of life. He can be the one that you claim when you stand before God and give an account. And he will be the one who takes you into heaven. Or he can be the one who ends you. Because make no mistake about it, apart from Jesus Christ, one day the wrath of God will come on you. And if your story ends with the heartbreaking reality of an eternity in hell, and I shudder at the thought of one person facing that, if that's how your story ends, you need to know it won't be your mistakes that put you there. It won't be God who sent you there. It won't be because you didn't do enough good or because you didn't say the right prayers or go to church enough. Listen, it won't actually even be your sins that sent you there. Because everyone in heaven will be a sinner. It will be your rejection of Jesus Christ and his love and his grace that sends you there. Because he will be the stone that causes you to stumble and the rock that causes you to fall. His birth, his life, his death, his teachings, his resurrection, and the history of his church demand that you make a choice. And you must decide if he's going to be your cornerstone or if he's going to be your stumbling block. And you need to know that everything that we do as a church, 
The reason that we exist, the reason that we are here is simply this, to plead with you, make the right choice. Go all in with Jesus today. Let's pray.